Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension Corn Specialist Dr. Bob Nielsen and Extension Soybean Specialist Dr. Sean Castile. On this 18th episode, they join host Eric Pfeiffer to discuss planting and emergence so far this spring, planting populations, and replant prospects. 70-some thousand you talk about represents about 50% of a stand, and I'm saying somewhere below three-quarters of a stand because corn simply doesn't compensate as strongly for those lower populations as soybeans do. They're growing very slow, Mm -hmm. so they're metabolizing very slow. Mm -hmm. So I think the... You know, let's give a call out to Bill Johnson and the weed guys. I mean, there's going to be some injury because uh, it's just metabolizing that herbicide very slowly on both crops. Now let's get right to the agronomic insights from Bob and Sean with your host, Eric Pfeiffer, on Purdue Crop Chat. Welcome into the Purdue Crop Chat podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer, and I'm here with the stars of the show, as always. Bob Nielsen is here. Hello, Bob. How you doing, Eric? Fantastic. Good. Wonderful. Sean Castile's back with us this month. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Yeah, I decided to grace your presence today. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> Appreciate that. Hey, uh, it's been a pretty interesting run here since our last Purdue Crop Chat. Uh, just looking at the numbers from the last uh, crop progress report, it looks like uh, 46% of corn planted, 36% of soybeans planted. Let's start with soybeans. We were moving at a pretty nice clip there for a while, and then some heavy rains hit, right, Sean? Sure. Yeah, so no, April April is just a tremendous-looking month for us when we had fields that are uh, fit and able to get some tillage or no-till. And so, um, you know, I typically talk about late April, early May being the sweet spot for soybeans, but we had early April on a lot of fields. And so I just got done checking some of our April 7th beans, and they're at BC, so cotyledons and unifoliates fully expanded, and then we... We had a set that we planted on about April 27th, and those are just cracking. But uh, we have come to a halt with the rains that came in. And you think about even had a snow event, right, that, that mixed into that. But I don't think we had any issues in terms of the snow. The snow probably actually provided a blanket for us, and we didn't have any cold injury from that. Um, but beans are certainly uh, ahead of pace when you look at last last few years. Uh, but you've got to keep 2019 in the mix. That really just drags everything back. So, you know, I typically think that we've got half of our crop planted uh, by about the 20th of May. And so we're at 36 percent. You know, if we dry out, um, maybe start tickling in some of the fields by the end of the week, we can probably get back to what I would call a normal pace uh, by next week. Um, but there are some saturated fields out there, and so some just questionable stands are going to be coming up, seedling diseases. So there's a lot to consider with this crop. And corn, really the same story, right, Bob? Yeah. I mean, the good news is we're, the planting progress is on par with the 10-year running average, and I use 10 years yep. to try to mellow out that effect of 2019. So we're right on par with a 10-year average. And, of course, you know, that's as of Monday's report, as you indicated. And so... Uh, when we get to next week's report, we're going to see this sort of flatten out yep. basically and 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 we're going to lose ground. But, you know, half the crop in by this point in May, a little bit of a, of a stall this week. But we know in both crops, once the 
fields get fit and the weather conditions improve, we know that we can plant an awful lot of corn and beans per week. And so, honestly, I think if we get uh, another two weeks of good planting conditions, I think that'll make a big dent sure. on both crops yeah, and come get, close uh, to that 90%. Yeah, I mean, gosh, and probably in two <laughs> weeks, we can probably, each each crop perspective, probably half the crop could get planted in two weeks. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I say with corn already at near 50, yeah. I think we could be nearly done yep. in two weeks worth of planting exactly. with just at we're going to skip a week here sure, sure. with the Just rain that delay. we've had. Well, it was a lot of rain, and it looks like I'm looking at uh, Chief Meteorologist Ryan Martin's forecast here from Hoosier Ag today, and it looks like more rain possible this weekend and going into Monday. So we might have some more rain on the way, which kind of begs the question here, Bob, if rain continues, what does that mean for corn planting? How late? But we've talked about this before on this program mm-hmm. that you know we can plant in June and still have pretty good yields. Well, yeah, that's right. In fact, some, a lot of us often joke with some of the years we've had of June planted corn and achieving nearly record high yields. Some of us joke, why don't we wait every year? So it is, in fact, a fact that, that late planting uh, for corn in and of itself uh, does not guarantee low yields. And, and that's simply because it's one of many factors that influences actual yield in any given year. Uh, sure, if the conditions are fit in April and and you know we can get planted, sure we always we always like to do that. But but we're at a point now, you know, we're at the 10th or 11th of May, and and we're stalling out this week. But if we get the rest of this crop in yet this month, we're in good shape. There's no reason to think about switching hybrid maturities through most of May and most of Indiana. Um, so I guess at this point, even though, you know, I tend to be a pretty good fear monger about these things, uh, I'd say at this point, there's no reason to fear monger, uh, until we see what the next rain turns out to be that's forecast. And if we're lucky, it'll be a couple of tenths and sure. we know how fast that can dry out. So again, at this point, I wouldn't worry. I would just focus on getting the rest of that original crop planted. And I sort of say original crop because Sean and I both say that there probably will be some replanting required on some of these early fields that are now stressed by the cold soils and in many cases saturated soils. You talk about you know, why, why don't we wait till June and just get the crop in. It's it's really about risk management, right? And right. so trying to cover a lot of ground in a hurry. We've got equipment that can do it. You can go all night long, right? We've got shifts, so you just That's rotate right. the person out, RTK, and you're good right. to go, right? But uh, part of that is in the risk management. And so then now we've got the April plantings. We even had some May or March planted mm-hmm. beans. So, I mean, those ultra earlies are their own own ball of wax but i mean you think about the the april plantings and the the ponds that are out there are saturated conditions on both crops mm-hmm. i mean that's part of the management and so you know you have to go back in to to replant right. that uh, i dare say that on the two crops i mean water affects them both in terms of stand establishment you think about any uh, seedling diseases but the recommendation i think out of both of our <laughs> houses come a little different when we think about what are we doing on a replanted corn situation versus a replanted soybean situation well and and part of that uh difference might be that, you know, corn really requires, well, actually in both crops, requires pretty dramatic loss of stand yep. before you think about replanting. And 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 for corn, um, you know, there's so many factors that come into play on making a replant decision. There, There's the actual stand that's surviving, it's the health of the stand, it's the costs of replanting, the costs at the end of the year in terms of wetter grain if you replant sure. late. Uh, the actual replant date, are we talking tomorrow or are we talking two weeks from now that we exactly. can actually get out and replant? So there's a lot of factors that go into replanting corn. And and I, it's hard for me to throw out any kind of ballpark populations or percent stands that merit a replant. But 
but certainly as we get somewhere below three-fourths of a stand, that's where one needs to think seriously about replanting. Uh, but then you get into some issues of, well, okay, you know, are we going to terminate the crop that is there sure. uh, to avoid competition or not? And if you decide to do so because of herbicide-tolerant hybrids, now you've got some other decisions on how are we going to terminate it. We could till it under, uh, and that will certainly uh, do a, a good job of it, uh, but we can't use glyphosate. We can't use glufosinate mm-hmm. on most of these herbicide-traded corns. And now we're left with things like Select Max, which works, except right. you've got a six-day waiting period after you apply it before you can legally go in and so plant So insult corn. to injury, right? When That's you think right. about, okay, I'm going to have a later planted replant, and now I've got to wait six more days, That's right. right? And so, yeah. That's right. Um, and, you know, iron out is the, the tool of choice with that, right? I mean, get mm-hmm. the tillage out. You know, on the on the soybean side of it, um, soybeans adapt uh, the plant populations regardless of a replant scenario. So, in other words, we can have 140,000 seeding rate out there, and you do stand counts in a good-looking field in June. It's 120,000 plants. You go out there in September, October, it's 110. There's self-thinning that's occurring on soybeans every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the percent of self-thinning is actually higher whenever you have a higher seeding rate. So, with that being said... They are improvising, they're adapting based on the population that's there. And so if they're self-thinning, plants are dying off, and then we've got those that are potted up on the main stem versus branches. And then now we'll bring in the the lower populations. You know, we think about uh, 70,000 plants, I'll throw a number out there. Uh, that's my gray area in terms of whether we're to replant. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by replant, it's, it's really overseed. I, I Very rarely do I call call the ball on just clean tillage of a field because soybeans are different in terms of we've got a shorter season. We've got photo period and heat units that we're trying to maximize. Mm-hmm. And so the plants that are already out there with, let's go with April 27th planting, they're just cracking or they're thinking about it, and you've got another week or two to make that assessment. Um, they, they've gained so much ground in just starting the initiation of nodal development, so where the trifoliates attached, pods, and reproductive branches. That's the biggest one for me. Uh, when we have fields that are at VC, so that's cotyledons and unifoliates expanded, that's when the branches have already initiated based on light quality around there. Mm-hmm. And so 70,000 or less is when I think about, okay, let's go and overseed. If it's above that, uh, don't touch it. Um, I've had these classic uh, mm-hmm. calls and emails on this. Uh, Sean, here's what it is, that, that same 70,000 or so. It does look pretty pitiful for a while. It'll take a little while to, to come through. But if you're talking, again, an April-planted bean uh, that's now in the middle of May, 70,000, you've got ample time for good yield potential. And that same mm-hmm. grower that will give me a call, I think of one in particular, it came back with the yield map in the, the following fall and said, here's the line. I went ahead and replanted part of the field. And the field that uh, the part of the field that I replanted was 67 bushels. The field that the part of the field that I didn't replant at 70,000 was 72 bushel. Right. So it's not to say it's mm-hmm. always going to be that kind of a difference, but I don't think we're gaining the ground other than if it's across your farm or it's your landlords and they want a nice green right. green field by you know, July 4th or something. And to put that in perspective, you know that 70 some thousand you talk about represents about 50 percent of a stand, and exactly. I'm saying somewhere below three quarters of exactly. a stand. Uh, because corn simply doesn't compensate as strongly for those lower populations sure. as soybeans do. Yeah. 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 And I think w- with the fields, uh, I'll go back to the plantings that we have right now. So some of those those soils were nice and warm in, in April and even drying out. Can we can we even think about that? We were drying <laughs> out. And I think you and Tony were having this conversation about you know, 
That's right. You know, recreational tillage, effectively, right? And then drying that out, and we've got areas of the state that are D1 status, and now we've got two or three inches. So I dare say that there's a number of fields, at least on the soybean side, I'd assume corn, that depth control was a major decision, right? You go back a few weeks ago and mm -hmm. said, do I chase after the water or not? And soybeans, if we're looking at, um, let's say they chased after it at two inches, that, that's getting to an area of a depth that you think about the way that soybean emerges and having even more issues, especially now with two inches, three inches of rain, pounding rain. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say it dries off and then we get a crust. There's just not the energy reserves. We're going to have cotyledons that are going to start uh, shedding. We're going to have hypocotyls that start to swell and probably crack. And that's also sort of illustrates the difference in how each crop emerges yep. with corn with a fairly rigid coleoptile or spike that it elevates to the surface, a little easier to penetrate than this hypocotyl right. of the soybean that sort of pulls itself up. Yeah, the and, surface area is totally different. You've got a yeah. spear that's going through there, right? And right. i got a spoon. Right. So, uh, you know, both crops are certainly subject to crusting and the effects of it on emergence. And, and you know, when we talk about chasing the moisture with corn and possibly going down to three-inch depths, people worry about, oh, my gosh, what mm -hmm. about a crust? Well, my contention has always been it's not so much the depth of the seed that determines the effect of the crust. It's where that spike is when the crust develops. So yeah, you could have a two-inch uh, planting that is not yet emerged and, and gets hit with that crust, and it will perform just as poorly as something planted three. So, so again, I, I think in corn, that is one of the concerns I have on anything that was planted, say, at least a week before last week's hard rain that wasn't emerged when those pounding rains came. Those are the field, the, the tilled fields mm -hmm. in particular, but even some of the, the uh, strip-till fields uh, and maybe even some of the no-till fields, you can still get a good crust over that furrow with these excessively hard rains. So I think in, in, as folks look and walk and scout these fields over the next week or so mm -hmm. for emergence, they need to be aware of that possibility of some emergence problems. And then, of course, we start talking about the possibility of rotary hose, which oh, sure. we know from experience are few and far between right. uh, today versus years ago. But certainly those that have rotary hose and have been hit by these kinds of rains, they need to at least be thinking about the possibility of needing to hit those fields sure. to break up that crust a little bit. So as you talked about assessing these fields, uh, you know, it, it's easy to start just driving around every day because <laughs> there's nothing else to do and just kind of window window scout. But mm -hmm. on, on the corn side, you know, put a heat unit to it. What, where's a point where I should start to be looking at these fields so then I can be use my time a little more effectively, right? No, that's a great question because corn is fairly predictable in how many heat units it requires to emerge. And it's somewhere around 115 to 120 heat units and it's accurate, particularly if you base it on soil temperatures. Sure. You can, you, you know, most of us have access primarily to air temperatures, but nevertheless, it's somewhere around that 115 to 120 heat units. So, yeah, there's certainly no reason to be out there uh, scouting those fields when you've accumulated half of that amount, right. um, because then it is purely recreational driving and recreational scouting. But as those fields get closer to accumulating that 120, that's where you need to be out there and taking a look mm -hmm. at, you know, is the crust there? Is it beginning to crack maybe because it's drying out is it not cracking and and start making some decisions on on things like a rotary hoe or i suppose if you've got a pivot you mm, could go yeah, in water and it water up. it up yep. if it does soften that crust up sure. a little bit uh, you, you know you're going to cost a little spend a little money yeah. doing it but but uh but 
you know, that and rotary hose or the hope of more rain is about the only hope you have of uh, corn emerging through a very thick crust. So on the corn side, as you're assessing these, they're just starting to spike through. You're rolling it after your 125 heat units. You're thinking about how good that stand is. When are you making the call of a replant? That's a tough question. That oh, is, come on now. That is such a tough well, question. that's why you're here, Bob, to well, answer the tough questions. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I'm just saying it's a tough question. There is no black and white to it. Because you know, you're always thinking the ones that aren't yet through that crust. Yep. Well, they're healthy. I've dug them up. I've, I've looked yep. at them, and there's, the plant parts are still healthy. Yes, they could come up, um, and it's a, it is a challenge. And I think ideally what I would, in practice, I would wait until the first emergers are clearly at, say, late emergence or just barely at the V1. And if they've still okay. got blanks in the row... Uh, you know, that's sort of a telltale sign there that because even if they do emerge at that point, they're going to be one or two leaves behind in development, sure. and then they, in essence, don't contribute much to yield. So, but again, it is, I wish there was a black and white way to say, okay, if I don't have 90% of them up by today, I'm going to pull the trigger. Sure. But it isn't never quite that clear cut. And I don't, is it even, is it any more clear cut in soybeans? I, I think it is in terms of um, making the call because uh, I mentioned earlier when soybeans are, you know, cotyledons and unifolates are fully expanded. We had a small study when I first started here and uh, a VC, so at that stage, and then we did replants at VC, we did them at V2, and you got to drop off the cliff in V4. No one's going to practically do that, but you got to just mm. you know, drop off that cliff. I'd say V2 is a fairly common stage for people to make the call of, of doing a replant, and I dare say that is too late. Uh, we need to be making the call VC to V1. Okay. And, and with that, it's because of those, those soybean plants have already detected the light quality around it, right? So, you know, shading essentially is what we're talking about. And uh, if we've got a decent stand, 70,000 or above at VC, we're good. But, boy, if it's less than that and you think about it, you start digging up and they're going to be a, a delayed emerger another week or two, uh, yeah, I think we need to be making that call because we're mm. losing out on our growing season once again, photo period and heat units, whereas uh, what's already there at VC, V1, I mean, that's hard. You're just rowing that, right? You think mm -hmm. about 60-mile-an-hour windshield scouting, you're barely mm -hmm. rowing that field. And mm -hmm. so that's where, you know, getting out there and, and making sure you know what you have. On the soybean side, I asked you about heat units. On, on soybeans, usually I think of around that 100, 140 to 160 heat unit markets have more than 50%. And that's air temperature. We haven't done as much on the soil temperatures, but I would dare say that. I mean, you, you, you take that down a little bit. So it's, you know, maybe that one... 130 to 150 kind of soil temperature mark but that helps us assess okay what's out there right now and and to make that call and be prepared to make that call uh, i think the other part that goes into this um it's just the, the bloody equipment right i mean you got a planter and i still got air seeders i still got drills and mm -hmm. so that's where the depth control is all over the board and so that stand establishment is totally different when you're comparing that versus a 15 inch row planter or a 30 inch or 20 or twin and then you bring in residue issues. So, yeah, I'd say for us, I mean, VCV1, we need to be taking the stand counts and making the call. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat with Bob Nielsen, Sean Castile, and your host, Eric Pfeiffer. Bob, I want to talk about soil temperatures a bit. You, you brought me this nice little packet here of information today. And it looks like, you know, here in northern Indiana, we just haven't really had that many uh, daily growing degree days that, that have really helped this crop emerge. No, and that's exactly right. We, you know, it takes about 120 GDDs to get it up, uh, but those are soil temperature 
GDDs. And we, in this time of the year, soil temperature often lags behind air temperature. So while we've had a number of days into the 60s or even 70s, the soils were still sort of catching up and coming out of winter, so to speak. And so uh, towards the end of April through about the middle of last week, we were finally getting some accumulations, uh, some decent accumulations of green degree days because the soils had finally warmed consistently uh, above that 50 degree mark. But in the past, I'll say seven days or since this cold snap has started, uh, these soils have come back down, and we're now getting nighttime minimums all uh, below 50 degrees mm. again. And here it is, you know, the 10th or 11th of May. So, and now southern Indiana, it's a little different story because they typically warm up sure. sooner anyway. But even down at our southeast Purdue farm over the last couple of days, we've had nighttime temperatures, soil temperatures on bare soil below 50 degrees. So, you know, in order to get corn emerged in about 10 days, to get that 120 growing degree days, you need to be averaging about 10 mm -hmm. growing degree days or 12 growing degree days per day. Uh, and we are simply not there yet here at the agronomy farm in west central Indiana. We were approaching that in southeast Indiana, but in the past seven days, we're no longer averaging sure. that down there either. So that's why this corn in particular is taking forever and a year mm -hmm. to emerge. Uh, and when it's emerging, it's often not emerging very uniformly. And that, again, is partly going to drive some replant decisions is that it's taking so long to emerge, it's emerging unevenly, and the longer that corn takes to emerge and begin that initial establishment of that stand, the more, uh, the longer it's simply subjected to below ground issues, saturated soils, disease, mm -hmm. insects, and things that can stress it out and stunt it and even kill it. And, and so, Unfortunately, even though we got half the crop planted, which is good news, the bad sure. news is we've not had a great start to that germination, emergence, and stand establishment like I'd like to see. And and I think time's going to tell as to is that going to turn into a big deal or is Mother Nature going to cooperate and, and we'll get back into some you know, more decent kind of developmental conditions. So I think the other part, you talked about the, the latitude, right, the southeast farm versus our southwest or southern Indiana. You, you need to bring in or we need to bring in the soil types and the drainage that's mm, there, right? I mean, yep. I think about the southeast crawdad soils. I mean, they mm -hmm. just, an inch of rain's like three or four inches, it seems like. And so it just mm -hmm. doesn't drain. And so that's a huge part of the way these, these both crops are growing and developing versus you get a little sandier texture soil. Uh, again, better drainage. I think that's a, a night and day difference in terms of same exact, exact heat units, but the overall moisture conditions. And then take that down the road of seedling diseases well and you'll see the same kind of variability even throughout the rest of the state on our on yep. areas within a field that yep. are very poorly drained versus not or maybe you know the more silty clay loams versus the sandy loams in the yep. same field and so yeah there will be areas of fields coming up differently mm -hmm. because of all this um, and, you know, for corn, you mentioned diseases. Of course, we always worry about seedling blight, and particularly after about three weeks from planting, that's when the, the seed-applied fungicide begins to deteriorate. And so once that fungicide begins to deteriorate, it's held the seedling blight at bay for three weeks. Sure. But, boy, if that crop has not developed to, oh, let's say, V2, V3, at the end of that protection, 
then it's very subject to, to not just stunting but stress from some of the seedling blights. And we've seen this over and over again over the years where, you know, the crop technically looks good as it's coming up, but it's been three to four weeks and suddenly, boom, it, it just goes downhill with seedling blight. So, so is, in your opinion, is that just the plant can't, can't just outgrow the disease that's, you know, the stress that it's putting on it? The, the key thing is that the, the permanent or nodal roots have not yet begun to develop until about V3. Sure. So then prior to that, if you damage that mesocotyl or the seed, before there's any permanent roots out and you, you essentially cut it off below the crown with the disease, there's no, there's no roots above it to sure. keep it going. And that's why the critical turning point is always about that V3 where you begin to get those crown roots coming out mm -hmm. and getting established. And then you can damage the mesocotyl or the seed below it and have much less damage. But that V3 to V4 is always that, you know, where you breathe a sigh of relief if, you've, if you can get it out that far mm -hmm. and it's still uniform. So. One that we haven't hit, and it hits both crops, is is a herbicide, right? You think yeah. about programs that have been out there. Uh, let's let's hope and assume that we got pre's out. Right. There was a case, and I I called the ball on not planting some fields because I couldn't get a pre out there. I want to start clean, and now maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot. I could have done something right. different in the post, but regardless, um, you know, part of those pre's on both crops, the plant is still taking it up. Right. It's right. not that it's uh, not it's uh, occluding air. It's not it's got this barrier and it's not taking right. up. It's taking it up and metabolizing right. it. Cool, wet soils uh, that limited sunlight, all that they're growing very slow. Mm -hmm. So they're metabolizing very slow. Mm -hmm. So I think the you know, let's give a call out to Bill Johnson and the weed guys. I mean, there's going to be some injury because uh, it's just metabolizing that herbicide very slowly on both crops. That's a, no, you're exactly right. That's another big risk if we continue. You know, I'm sitting here in our nice uh, socially distanced uh, recording studio here, but looking out the window, it's still a cloudy, cool day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and uh, we just haven't yet got back to average, let alone above average temperatures, and those crops are going to continue to develop at a snail's pace. Yep. No doubt. Sean, let's talk about soybeans here for a moment. Uh, I know you like to get them in early. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're here May 11th. Are you having second thoughts? Are you no, having... I wish I had more in. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when is too late? Uh, well, uh, yeah, so certainly I, I talked about when the state is about half planted by the 20th of May. That middle of the month, 15th to 20th of May, is really about the point where we start to tick off in terms of yield potential. Mm. And so a lot of that comes into the factors of field conditions themselves, the variety. Uh, in a general sense, we're a third to, to half a bushel per acre per day when we go beyond May 15th, May 20th. And that's a, I'm given a range because it varies a little bit on are we talking about a no-till field? Are we talking about a, a tilled field that's going to be warmer and get up and out of the ground quickly? But I do have varieties that um, we're a straight linear yield decrease from late April planting to the end of the month. In other words, we're still losing half a bushel per acre per day. Uh, regardless, if we planted April 27th or May 15th, they're still yielding less. And so that yield potential is certainly going to be a, a concern on a lot of the crop. Uh, it's not to say it's a kiss of death by any means, right? We've, we've got, um, you know, the September weather, I, I think about just mm. it's make or breaks a crop for us in a given year, a normal year. And then I look to our two, 2018, our 2020, our 2016, a lot of those years, and we got good plantings in. Not everything was super early, but they were a similar pace of what we have had prior to this week. But we had beautiful weather when we came into September. And what I mean by that, we had good soil temperatures, had good sunlight, had good moisture. 
so I think that we can still have a crop that, that plays out well. Um, you know, are we going to have the, the bin busters uh, with what's left in the crop? I think there's the potential. Uh, maybe it's not as high. I know Bob and I have this kind of back and forth that you, you feel a little bit more forgiving uh, to get the crop in a little bit later. I, I am a little bit more pushed. To, I want to get the bean crop in sooner uh, to get the heat units and photo period together working. Otherwise, we, we shorten our reproductive period when we go to later plantings and, and shorter uh, yield potential in general. And that points out, again, one of the key developmental differences between these two crops. Yep. The photo period is so much more important for soybeans yep. than for corn. And that's, I guess that's part of the, the reason why there's a little more leeway on that aspect of the corn crop. And yeah, I, I, think that's, I think it's that exactly. And now the rub for you guys is, okay. <laughs> you guys. You Did guys. you hear that, Eric? Yeah, you guys. <laughs> you, you, it's usins and y'alls. So, so, I mean, the idea of that, uh, you get the, the crop planted the last week of May, first week of June. I mean, so then I think about, okay, your harvest, your dry down. Mm-hmm. So those, oh, those kind yeah. of issues come that's to my right. mind on, yeah. on that crop. Whereas on the soybean crop, um, I think about, I mean, we're, we're typically a three-to-one ratio. So if we're delayed three weeks, we're about a one-week delay rough uh, on harvest. Well, a one-week delay in the falls that we've had, you think about days that we've, we've got 80-degree weather, and so we're able to run the combine <laughs> at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning and run until 8. I mean, we're just going through a lot of fields. Versus a week to 10 days later, now all of a sudden we're right into 1 o'clock. And we can only go to 7 o'clock. And so the harvest efficiency goes way down on the soybean crop. So that's another reason that I really like to have this crop in earlier. Right. right. Bob, any final thoughts here as we close out this uh, this Purdue Crop Chat podcast? Well, maybe just one that was shared by our colleague Tony Vine this morning that, you know, as we get into this uh, race to get back to the fields after this pounding rain, you know, we got to keep in mind this risk of creating soil compaction and, and – mm-hmm. And we need to resist that 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 notion or that feeling that oh let's just go out and open up the let's go out and do a little till it a little shallow and open it up and let it dry out and yet that's a very good way to create some very shallow layers of soil compaction which can come back and really kick you later in terms of restricted root growth so I know it's middle of May approaching middle of May and I know we want to get this crop in but you know we can certainly cause ourselves a lot of headaches if we create some shallow compaction as we rush to the fields and that's sort of almost the annual challenge that we face is is how do we balance that risk of getting in too early and compacting versus getting in um, so I just sort of remind people of the risk I guess that uh, we don't want to be out creating unnecessary compaction as these fields open back up. And you've mentioned here just a little while ago that once we do get some fit soils, we can get it in pretty fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think on both crops, we can approach 30 to 35% of the state's acreage in a week. Yes, most definitely. And yeah. and so, again, with where both of our crops are, two weeks, we could almost mm-hmm. finish this crop off. So, th- yes, that's one of the reasons that there's not a big hurry, particularly on the corn side sure. you know, because of the photo period yep, yep. discussion to not get in a terrible rush, uh, an unnecessary rush, maybe I should say. Well, I want to uh, further the point on compaction. So if if a field had been worked, I mean, I I looked at some of my fields. uh, We worked in April, and 
because I want to be able to run multiple planting dates and, and things like that. And I mean, I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to stale seed bed. It's it's beautiful conditions, starting to crust a little bit, and it'll just it'll work in right, uh, very friable. I mean, some of the conditions were amazing for good one-pass tillage, if you're looking at that. The other thing I want to bring up with compaction is it's not just tillage. It's also, okay, let's rush to the field, stale seed bed like I'm talking about, and I dug down with my spade, and, <laughs> I mean, it's glistening at uh, three-quarters of an inch right now, yeah. right? And so it's starting to dry off, and so, I mean, just because it's dry on top, I mean, you, obviously you got to walk out there and take a look at that field, maybe put a spade down for heaven's sake. But uh, this this idea of sidewall compaction, that causes some major issues yes. on both crops. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, you can get by with it if you get some timely rains, but you're just hoping and praying that you get those timely rains to get the roots through that that sidewall compaction. Uh, I think that another one that we need to, to consider is, you know, what you planted with in April uh, is not the same settings you should be planting in, in May. And so I'm talking about down pressure, and you can overdo it. And so you got sidewall compaction as well as you, you're pinching on, on top of that, that closing that row. That's, no, you're exactly right. And I mean, and you and I have seen many, many times yep. the consequences of that around the state. And I, I don't think we fully realize that on the, when we're out there in the heat of planting yep. of what we can do, and both on sidewalls and, as you said, the, the down pressure to close the furrows. Yep creating some additional compaction. So again, you know, the key word here is let's be cautious, let's be safe, and let's be smart as we get back into these fields. Sean, anything final from you here? Uh, I, yeah, I just think that we maintain the course that we, we've had in terms of there's no reason to change seeding rates, there's no reason to change variety and maturity groups at this point. I think we're in a healthy state in terms of once the fields are fit, make that assessment. I think you can roll and, and roll hard. Thanks for joining us on the Purdue Crop Chat Podcast. For Bob Nielsen and Sean Castile, I'm Eric Pfeiffer. Thank you, Eric, and thank you for listening to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular feature and production of Who's Your today in conjunction with Purdue Extension Service. Once again, our thanks to Bob Nielsen and Sean Castile with Purdue. I'm Andy Eubank for Purdue Crop Chat from Who's Your Ag Today. Timely, relevant, credible.